7.02. Get ready, guys. It's time for Ira on Sports. 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo with you as well. Uh, Sean's not going to be in tonight, Ira. Apparently, he drafted Dak Prescott in his fantasy league, and he's just been crying since then about uh, how terrible he and the Cowboys are going to be this year. Ira, let's get into it right away because... We've got so much to talk about. You've been extremely busy. I know that. NCAA started up. Uh, NFL starts this week. I'm sure you've got some fantasy drafts over the weekend. Golf, tennis, baseball. So much going on in the world of sports, Ira. Where have you been? Well, I was in, I'm in New York right now, and I'm going to go watch Roger Federer in about two hours play his uh, round of 16 match. I'm so psyched for that because I don't know how many more matches I can see a Roger Federer playing, the greatest of all time. But I was at the U.S. Open Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, um, almost some days from 12 to 12. And then I was at the Penn State-Appalachian State game, uh, which probably was not going to be a big deal to anybody, but, of course, it could have been one of the greatest upsets in, in college football history. So I was at that game on Saturday. So I've been to a lot of places, a lot of things going. This is football season, uh, and the, I love the U.S. Open. So this has been a great time for me to see live sports. We'll talk about Penn State in just a second, because that was one of my first questions. I had to grill you on this one. Um, but, you know, two things. One... I didn't realize they played tennis this late at night. You're saying this game starts, uh, this match starts at like nine o'clock. Yeah, I mean the the U.S. Open has lights, so it's, the other night on Saturday there was a match that didn't end until two thirty in the morning. So it's uh, they definitely play all night and all day. It is the greatest venue. Uh, it is one of the most greatest venues in terms of going to see tennis matches, going to see everything outside. There's at Wimbledon, Australian Open, French Open, they're the only ones like it, that you can see, uh, go out in the outside courts and the inside courts. Uh, the first week, there's, they're playing on 16 different courts. So you don't even have to be in the main stadium, and you're going to see top players in the world, and you're only 10, 15 feet away from them. So it's really exciting to go out, and I like to jump around the first week from court to court. But this year, because Federer and Nadal... Uh, might not be around much longer. I tried to go see them in Ash at the beginning, so I was able to go see them the first week. Ash is the main stadium. Uh, of course, you keep Sean and I updated. You know, we've got a group text. You got some really good pictures, so you, you were really close to the action, weren't you? Yeah, well, it was good. I, I got lucky. I mean, this is really hard to scout for. Um, there, there's a ticket brokers, there's StubHub, there's Ticketmaster, and the price is you're just, you have to really be looking at like a bunch of sites, checking with brokers, checking with who's selling them. It's very hard, it's very hard to do, but I was lucky. I've been very lucky so far. I've got some great seats. Um, they opened up a new stadium called the Louis Armstrong Stadium. That used to be the, the main stadium. This stadium is perfect because you can actually, every seat is close. They have the good matches on that stadium. So you don't have, you're not seeing Federer and Nadal on that stadium, but everybody else is over there. And you can, and, you, and the seats are one fifth the price of going into Arthur Ashe to watch a match. And it's, a, it's great. You can walk around. They just built it, just completed it. It has a retractable roof. So if it rains, it covers up. But that's been a great. I've seen half my matches been in that stadium. It's been, it's, a, it's such a, it's a perfect stadium. Arthur Ashe is hard to watch because there's low level seats, which are ridiculously expensive. Then there's two levels of suites, which you can never get into. Then there's these upper level tickets, what they call it the 100 section, where I normally sit, but that's pretty high. And then the 300, which are almost unwatchable, they're up so high. And that's <laughs> the, like 16,000 of the 20,000 seats on the 300 level. So it is a, it's a, it's a difficult, it's an ash stadium is hard to watch matches unless you have really better seats. Is there anybody more passionate about tennis and sports in general than Ira? This is Ira on Sports 95.9, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo at 7.06. Let's talk about it, Ira. Football is back. 
Penn State's back in action, and they played a super close game against Appalachian State, who's been known to upset people before. This is a little too close for comfort if you're a Nittany Lion. Um, too close for comfort? I mean, they should have lost the game. In other words, I, I, again, I thought the line was 22. My friends asked me all about Penn State. They think I'm such a homer about Penn State, which I am. I said, I'm, not, I'm concerned about this game. Penn State was replacing a lot of players. They had some suspensions. I think the offense is going to be loaded. They have their quarterback back, which always counts. But I'm nervous about the defense, and I was, and, and, and also there's jitters. And Appalachian State has proven. That, I mean, they were eight and four last year. I mean, they're a good team. They beat Toledo in the bowls, like forty to nothing. They're not. They're playing. So they're not a one away team like they were when they beat Michigan. This is a really good football team. Who I don't think anyone's ever going to schedule to play again. But they should have beat Penn State. Uh, Penn State was very lucky to win, and uh, it was. It was. But it was, a, it was an amazing game. I'm glad that you covered that. I I forgot who the team was. You're right. It was 2007 when Appalachian State Week 1 beat an awesome Michigan team. Nobody saw that coming, Ira. You remember that day? Uh, I was in... I exactly remember the day because I was with friends in the Hamptons and I was supposed to go meet them at the beach and I said, you know what, I'm going to catch this Michigan game. And I stayed at a sports bar. I was like the only person in the sports bar in Montauk watching that game. <laughs> so actually I knew where exactly it was when that happened and it was, uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous... But Penn State, I think, is higher rated than a better Michigan team. This that was a huge upset because they were one away. But if Penn State would have lost this game, this might have been Penn State's biggest upset ever. So to lose, the worst loss ever. More surprising to me, Ira, I'm from New York and I didn't even know Montauk had sports bars. <laughs> um, speaking, you know, I'm from New York. I live in Florida now. I don't really have alliance or allegiance to any college team. So I kind of just like all of them. I, I want them all to do good here in Florida. Miami was a great story last year, and it was really fun to keep up with them. They didn't look good against LSU, and I think you think Malik Rozier may not be the answer there. Um, is Miami's season over before it started? It's not over, but Mark Richt was very, very concerned about that. At the end of the game, he's like, it's only one game, it's one game. But if you're a Miami fan, yeah, I think you. Yeah, they just—they didn't look like they were ready to play that game. LSU looked like they could move the ball at will against them, and Rozier, Rozier was not the quarterback that everyone said he's improved. He's worked with this. He's worked with this quarterback coach and this. They came out and they—they they weren't ready to play. And I want to jump back to Penn State because it's almost like I think Miami and Penn State were similar. Penn State won the game, but you just heard so much about Penn State this year about them working in the weight room, how they're doing it. The coach has these big press conferences, and everyone's supposedly doing something. Well, whatever they were doing wasn't enough. Appalachian State, they must have been doing the right things. I mean, their quarterback, Zach Thomas, was 25 for 38 for 270 yards. In his first start, they were running back, Jalen Moore, who rushed for 88 yards to catch five passes for 36 yards. They were a better prepared team. You should see how they ran their plays. They were misdirection all the time. Penn State, now the score was... They were, it was 10-10 at halftime. Penn State jumped out to a 24-10 lead. You think, okay, game's over. But somehow, Penn State in the fourth quarter gave up 28 points. They could not stop Appalachian State. Now, you're thinking, let's realize this. Penn State is rotating a million people in an offensive defense. They, they have their Appalachian State's team was smaller and had much, much less players playing, but somehow Penn State was wearing down and was poor, the worst team at the end of the game. And the only thing that saved Penn State was this guy, K.J. Hamler, who's a redshirt freshman. So he, I heard about how great he was. He was going to start as a wide receiver. He was going to be the new great wide receiver for Penn State against, uh, opposite Juwan Johnson, who was also great. So they, they kick off him like four times. 
the kicker for Appalachian State would kick in the ball deep in the end zone. KJ wants to take the ball out, and all the Penn State players would say, don't run out, don't run out, don't run out. So now Appalachian State takes the lead with two minutes to go. They're up seven. They kick the ball. KJ gets it in the back of the end zone. Again, they're saying, don't run out. He runs up to the goal line. Then he runs back a little bit. They said, you know what? I'm just going to run out. And he ran 50 yards <laughs> and set up Penn State. They had a drive. And then he catches a touchdown pass to tie the game. And then it's sent overtime, and Penn State was lucky to win in overtime. I mean, the weird thing about this Penn State game is that Penn State had 100 yards. Uh, Appalachian State had nine penalties for 100 yards. Penn State only had two penalties for 10 yards. And it seemed like the penalties in Appalachian State, and I'm a, I support Penn State, they were ridiculous. They kept calling chop blocks on them. They were calling <laughs> weird, like, lot, um, intentional grounding on a pass where I think it almost hit the receiver's hands. Like, the calls were terrible. The Appalachian State was totally robbed in the game, and they still only lost. And they had a chance at the end of the, first, of the second half when, they, when Penn State had scored to tie it. They had a few seconds left and they kicked a 56-yard field goal that had the distance but missed by five yards. So it was absolutely, I mean, Penn State's defense gave Appalachian State 450 yards and 22 first downs. That's inexcusable. And the same thing in the Miami game. Miami, going back to Miami game, Miami's defense, just, it seemed like LSU could just go up and down the field whenever they wanted, and that's not going to be the recipe for success when Miami can't go up and down. Like, if you're going <laughs> to let the other team go up and down, you better go up and down yourself. So that's where the concern was. I mean, the score was 33-17, but anyone who watched it, it was up 27. LSU was up 27-3. to Sort of took the uh, pedal off the gas on that game. Tell us more, just go back to Penn State real quick. So what happened in overtime? How did they beat App State? What? How did they how did they end up taking Appalachian State in overtime if we go back to Penn State? Well, they they ended up getting in terms of when it went to when it, when it went to overtime, the uh, uh, and it's weird, you know, the overtime rules in college football are are that you when they start the ball twenty five yard line. So Penn State was able to score a touchdown, but then Appalachian State, they had a chance to tie, and they threw it, and I swear the guy caught the ball, and the Penn State defender for a touchdown, which would have tied it to go send it the second overtime, but the Penn State defender just ripped it out of his hand on a turnover and won the game. So it was just, uh, and the, you know, everybody in Penn State was happy. If Penn State loses that game, the season's over. I mean, they could <laughs> win every other game 100 to nothing. They play Ohio State. They play Michigan. They play Michigan State. They play Wisconsin. They could beat everyone, but they're not playing in the college football playoffs losing to Appalachian State. There's no way their resume with an Appalachian State loss would get them in the college football playoffs. So they had, they could not lose that game. But it's great that they, I think you're, it was probably people to watch the game. It was a Big Ten network. It's Labor Day weekend. People saw the score overtime. They don't know what about it. But Penn State was not the better team that day. And, and I'll tell you this, if Penn State doesn't improve, they're not going to beat anyone. I mean, they're not going to, they're going to, they're going to be six and six if they play like this again. So they, they have a lot of work to do. But again, with the Miami thing, you just kept hearing all these, all these Penn State players are five star recruits. This is the best recruiting class Penn State has. They have a guy, Trace McSorley, is returning for Heisman Trophy candidate. Um, Barkley's not there, but we heard Miles Sanders, who actually had a good game, was going to replace him. Everything you heard about Penn State was positive, positive. But you can't hear all this comment about how they're working in the weight room, how they're working in practice, how they look in practice when they go out and they don't play well. And the same thing with Miami. You heard everything about Miami. This is a different Miami team. They're building. They won the, won the Coastal Division last year. They're building again. They're going to be great. This is the year. They just got their new facility. They now have the top facilities at all of the ACC, this new indoor practice facility. But they come out and they lay an egg against LSU. They're down 27-3. to They're the same Miami that's been in Miami the last four years. It's 714, Ira on Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Here's a stat for you, I. 
Miami was plus 160 points through its first 10 games of last year. Since then, they're minus 79. That's not a good stat. And this kid, Nick Brissett from LSU, looks like, I mean, LSU churns out running backs, but this guy looks like a stud in the making. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 that 60-yard touchdown run, I don't know. They were on the commentators on TV said, well, he had holes, he had this. I don't know. He just ran 60 yards and nobody, it seemed like no one touched him. And whatever one touched him, they couldn't tackle him. And Miami's so concerned about this uh, turnover chain and all this other stuff. I mean, maybe stop. LSU. Stop about worrying about turnovers. <laughs> Maybe stop them so they don't have to score every time they touch the ball. It was funny. They, at the first play, you knew what the problem was Miami. When LSU, at the beginning of the game, passes, they're driving down, they throw a 10-yard pass, the receiver catches the ball, and he gets hit. Now, it looks high, and then it looks like he fumbled the ball, but they ruled it they ruled it just an incomplete. I think they ruled it. They, oh, they ruled they catched it, went to the ground, and then they ran up to the line of scrimmage. But LSU was so pathetic that they couldn't get the playoff. So you would think they'd want to run the play, otherwise it would be a fumble. So but they didn't get the playoff. So then it was reviewed because they took so much time at the line of scrimmage. But then when they reviewed it, they said, guess what? Targeting on Miami, and they threw out Bandy, they're one of their top defensive backs from the game. So not only did LSU get to keep the ball, which I thought was a, you know, I don't know if that was the right call, but then they threw well, Bandy out of the game. So it hurt Miami from LSU you being pathetic and not be able to get a playoff. Let's talk, let's move on to Alabama. I feel like this is the most polarizing team in college football. Either you love them or you hate Alabama. I happen to be part of the latter. There's a lot of sports journalists, though, thinking that with Tua under center, this team could score 50 points a game. Do you think this is the best Alabama team we've ever seen? Um, I agree. I This Tua, I know there is something that Jalen Hurts has, I don't know, it certainly, it bothers Saban because he won't just name two of the starter when anybody watching the game realizes that Tua is not just a better quarterback than Jalen Hurts, Tua is the best quarterback they've ever had. <laughs> I don't, can we name Joe Namath? I don't, I mean, it's hard to see. I mean, remember, they won two national titles and almost won a third with A.J. McCarron, who just got cut by or traded, whatever, from the Buffalo Bills. So, I mean, who couldn't even start in the league, and he's supposedly the poster child for their best quarterback with, with, with A.J. McCarron. And now, Alabama, who can recruit the five-level recruits at every single position, that is faster, bigger, quicker, everything at every different level, they finally have a quarterback that's commensurate to the rest of their abilities. So now, when their wide receivers, because how many times you watch these Alabama games, their wide receivers are running wide open, everybody's open all over the place, and the quarterback overthrows, underthrows, and they win these ugly games. Not ugly, but it's like you can't score on them. Yeah, yeah, nobody scores on them. Nothing, 20 nothing. You know, now, they're going to win 100 to nothing. Like, they could name their score. Their defense isn't going to give any points. Their defense is as good as it's always been, except for that Clemson game two years ago. But the fact is that if they get in the Clemson game and they have, go against the Deshaun Watson, who suddenly the defense is playing poorly and the offense, they now have a quarterback who's the best quarterback in college football, it seems like. He completes every pass. I mean, he scored touchdowns on five out of the first six drives based upon going back to the Clemson game last year when he scored on how many drives? Four out of five drives. Every time he gets the ball, he scores a touchdown. It, you know, it's interesting that you, that you put it like that. You're right. Because I, I don't want to call them ugly wins. But Alabama will have a lot of those, yeah, 20 to 3 games because the defense just, they've got nine NFL, you know, future NFL players starting on a defense. But yet, this team, if they can start hanging scores like this, is there any team that can stop them in all of college football? I don't think so, I. I don't, 
I, you know, I, it would be Clemson and Georgia. I mean, that's what people. I mean, I, I'm predicting I, Clemson and Georgia and Alabama are heads and t- tail, heads and whatever. They are better than everyone else. And Alabama is just better than Clemson. Now, Clemson has this great defense. Clemson has a defense that two of their defensive linemen are on the first team All American. They have a third one on the second team. So they have three of the top, whatever, a seven defensive linemen are on their team. They have NFL players all throughout the roster. So in a championship game, yeah, they probably could. But right now, Alabama, I'm going to play Arkansas State next week. But Louisville wasn't that great a competition for them. But you can see just watching the game that they finally have an ability now. And now you have to actually play these wide. Last year they had Calvin Ridley. Boy, Calvin Ridley wished he had two all last year to play. Calvin Ridley would have been uh, one of the best wide receivers of all time if he had someone throwing a ball like that. But now they have these great wide receivers that get separation. They're going to have a quarterback that's going to get it. Now what does the defense do? Okay, now we're going to have to play the pass. Oh, does that mean these, they have like four offensive linemen that are going to be drafted in the NFL? They're just going to, you know, they're going to now run the ball for 100 yards. I mean, they can do everything now. They can pass, they can run. Their defense is going to shut teams down. They are literally unbeatable. I'm interested that you you brought up Calvin Ridley. I'm interested to see what happens with him, uh, with Matt Ryan under center. And we're going to talk a lot more fantasy uh, coming up a little bit later on Ira on Sports 95.9, True Oldies Channel. It's 719, a Mike Balsamo. You mentioned two teams that you think have a shot against Bama. What about Oklahoma? Let me give you a little stat here. Over the last 10 games... uh, they're, they're averaging 47.2 points a game. Um, my boy Lane Kiffin was on the radio, and I've never heard a coach do this before. Uh, he's the coach of FAU, obviously. He said, we have no chance in this game. Have you seen their guys? Have you seen our guys? That's something coaches don't do. Obviously, Lane Kiffin's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an oddball. But I, I respected that. But what about Oklahoma as a team that could maybe dethrone Alabama or any of these powerhouse SEC teams? Well, I don't think Oklahoma is going to dethrone Alabama. But I do think that the game, and I, I think the game, and I, I just called my friend who lives in Charleston, big WVU fan, there's a humongous game on Friday, November 33rd, November 23rd. It's 8 p.m. on ESPN. It's a long time away. It's going to be really cold. But I'll tell you what, West Virginia looks really good. They look. They destroy Tennessee. They have Will Greer, a quarterback, who is going to be maybe in New York as a potential Heisman finalist. Uh, and Oklahoma's got a tough game against West Virginia that game, and that's gonna that's probably gonna decide the Big 12 championship. Now they do have a Big 12 championship game this year, so they'll play again. Uh, but they might play those two teams might play the next week because they just take the top two from the again. There's not divisions, but I think that uh, I think Oklahoma West Virginia are by far the the, the best in the Big 12. Uh, but I, Oklahoma cannot. They don't have the defense. They're not gonna again. If, Al, if you want to track me with Alabama, Alabama's just gonna Oklahoma's not the team that's gonna beat Alabama. Let's uh, move on. It might have been the matchup of the weekend, Ira. Notre Dame versus Michigan. The 12 versus the 14. Notre Dame eked out a close one against the Wolverines. Well, I don't know if it was that close. It was it was close because of the score. And I left the Penn State game and then got to watch most of that game. Notre Dame goes out 14 nothing. Then they're up 21-3. And if it wasn't for uh, a, a, a 99-yard kickoff return, I thought Notre Dame had this totally... You can start to see in these games, special teams, they don't practice a lot, and you're seeing what happens. I mean, Penn State gave up a 100-yard kickoff return, uh, and Notre Dame gives up a 99-yard kickoff return. Um, you're starting to see a lot of this with the rules they have. In the, I'm interested in the NFL now with the new kickoff rules. If you're going to start seeing more returns because how teams are set up, they're not used to it, and players aren't used to it, and there's gaps that are created. But um, 
Michigan, but I don't know if I, I just didn't get a, it is the sense Michigan was out of the game. Notre Dame let them back in, and actually Michigan did have the ball with a chance to tie at the end of the game, which was surprising. But uh, uh, Shane Patterson was their big transfer from Mississippi, the quarterback for Michigan, and everyone said, well, this is going to be different. Now Michigan is a quarterback. He was 20 for 30, 227 yards, just didn't seem play, he didn't play well. He didn't, didn't look that good out there. When he got injured, McCafferty came in the game, actually looked like he ran the offense better. Again, it's just, I mean, look, everybody wants Harbaugh to get fired. I'm not the one. I don't think he is. I, I think they, they wanted him. There's no one else they could replace him with. Uh, and, uh, but the stat I saw that was interesting was Brady Hope was 28-18 and 18 in 40 games, uh, 40, uh, 28 and 18. Twenty and then Harbaugh was twenty-seven and thirteen. Almost what is that? It's the same, almost exact record that Hope and Harbaugh has over the first forty games. And Harbaugh's only been nine and nine in his last eighteen games, so he's only been five hundred. Now these are you know playing the Big Ten, these big games. They play Notre Dame at Notre Dame, but certainly Michigan fans were looking for much better. I, I know my friends who are Michigan fans are just so upset right now. Let's uh, let's move on. Uh, you know, we were talking about colleges. You brought this game before. It's West Virginia versus Tennessee. Tennessee is always going to hold. I went to college in Tennessee. They're always going to hold a soft spot in my heart. This West Virginia team, yeah, they manhandled them. Uh, and granted, you know, they're ranked 17. Tennessee's unranked. But you have really high hopes for West Virginia going forward. Uh, just the quarterback. Well, what do you think? Well, he's a transfer from Florida, so he played in Florida, and they, there was just you know no no position for him. In Florida, from off-field issues, other issues, but uh, people like West Virginia. I mean, and and it's hard to play. They're tough games. I love to look at schedules, and they don't have a lot of tough road games. And to play Oklahoma at West Virginia is a big deal. Um, Tennessee, remember, they got the defensive coordinator from Alabama, Jeremy Pruitt. People thought that he was going to be the superstar. I mean, they changed him around. I, it takes time. It takes more than one game. But, boy, you know, Tennessee has this great tradition. They were good for so long. I think everyone every year is just waiting for them to come back, and it's just it's not there yet. Now, they might have a great year this year, but uh, it was a bad loss for them. Uh, they, they haven't been significant in college football to me since they won with T. Martin. I mean, Peyton Manning before that, then they, they uh, won the Fiesta Bowl with T. Martin. I don't know. It seems like it's been a long time, but you struck me with something there. I didn't know Will Greer was at Miami. Um, how did he not find his way into the starting rock? Guy was had four to twenty nine yards and five touchdowns yesterday for West Virginia. You can't tell me that that they thought that they had better options there. No, he was at Florida. He oh, I'm sorry, Florida, UF. Yeah, but but uh, still, yeah, I mean, was, this yeah. is this is a really good quarterback. You think he's got Heisman potential? Yeah, Russell Wilson left. Um, and Russell Wilson was at NC State, and they replaced him with Mike Leonard, and he goes to Wisconsin. So sometimes people don't know how good they are when they have him there. And but um, he certainly has changed under different coaching and is playing much better now at West Virginia. And people have very high hopes for this team. Um, before we get to tonight's big matchup, FSU versus Virginia Tech, which I'll surely be watching. This was an interesting game and totally an upset. Maryland is good at this. Maryland likes to upset people. They're very rarely ranked very high. They beat a ranked Texas team, number 23, only by five points, 34 to 29, but still, big win for Maryland, I. Well, Maryland has Matt Canada. What's interesting about this game is that the interim coach at Maryland is Matt Canada, who was run out of town at LSU. He was the uh, offensive coordinator last year. People thought he did a terrible job. They fired him, and he goes up to, uh, to and he, now he's just the offensive coordinator in Maryland. Now they have issues with the coaching staff in Maryland. They, the head coach gets suspended, and then Matt Canada is now coaching at Texas, 
and again that they win again they win now they were it was at Maryland it was at uh, RFK it was at, at, at Redskins Stadium but uh, uh, Texas is not there again everyone thinks like these are teams Texas and Tennessee every year they're thinking okay they're going to come back they have this tradition they have this and it's still they're not there yet they lose to Maryland that's not good enough good win for the Big Ten though it's a nice little intersectional win you know, for a Maryland who is considered one of the lowest teams in the Big Ten to beat a team like Texas. Is uh, with and Texas gets more money. What's surprising is Texas gets more money for the athletic program than Alabama, than Penn State, really, Michigan, Ohio State. They're number one in the entire country. I had no idea that either. This is why we love you here. It's Ira on Sports, 727-959, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Big match up tonight at Dope Campbell Stadium. ACC rivals, number 19, Florida State, hosting number 20, Virginia Tech. Ira, the line is seven points in favor of FSU. I think that may be a little generous. Uh, I don't. I think this game is going to be a little closer than that. Who do you like tonight? I like Florida State, but we don't. You, I wouldn't bet this game. You have no idea what Florida State's going to team. And Virginia Tech plays hard, though, and it's a type of game where Florida State is not. Um, I think if Florida State takes this softly, it, it, it say, "Okay, we're at home. Virginia Tech's rebuilding." Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's. I, Again, like you, I think it's a really close game. Willie Taggart, his first game as a coach, you don't know what kind of program he has. Francois now is healthy. He's a quarterback, but he was injured last year. What kind of game he's going to have. It's going to be an interesting game to watch, to see what happens. But I'm, I'm not sold. I agree with you. I think it would be really tight. I would probably, if I, anything, I'd take, if I had to bet this game, I'd take Virginia Tech plus the point. Yeah, yeah, give me the touchdown in that game all day. Um, Ira, before we get to uh, tennis and all the fun you had at the U.S. Open, any games you're looking forward to for next week's card? Well, it's a real weird slate. You have a lot of good teams playing on the road against teams that could upset them. So it's a, it's interesting in that. Like number two, Clemson at Texas A&M. Now Texas A&M is getting fourteen points, and Texas A&M it's it's a tough place to play. But Clemson is probably so great. Um, I, I think that's going to be a real exciting game. I think USC is fifteen at number thirteen Stanford. Already a pack. That's going to be a Pac-10 uh, big time game. And the second week of the season, so I'm interested in that. Uh, 11th ranked Michigan State at Arizona State. Arizona State's getting six points. Michigan State played poorly this week. They barely beat Utah State at home. Um, Arizona State won. They had Herm Edwards, who hasn't coached in like 20 years, the former <laughs> pro football coach at the Chiefs. They, it's their fun. Interesting. They ran a little different offenses. Very interesting there. So I think that's going to be an intriguing game. Georgia. At South Carolina, South Carolina is getting ten again. A team in the SEC that's down, another big SEC. But Georgia doesn't have any many big games this year, so that's one of the games. So we'll have to see how they're going to look. And of course, I'll be at Penn State at Pitt, and Pitt's getting nine and a half points uh, against Penn State. So you have a lot of, as they say, home underdogs, and there's a lot of people that made a lot of money just betting home underdogs all the time. Pittsburgh is one of those teams I've always rooted for, you know, going back um, to, like, Larry Fitzgerald. They're, just, they're a team that I always, I don't know, I have a soft spot for them. What's the facility like there? Well, they play at Heinz Field. So normally Pitt plays in front of nobody. Like, there's, like, 10,000 people at the game. They played Albany this week, and we had Greg Gattuso on uh, a few weeks ago of Albany coach, and the score was 33-7. to But if you look at the yards, they were almost equal. I mean, if Albany had, like, four turnovers, without those turnovers, this game would have been much closer um, they were driving against Pitt. I saw uh, part of the game on replay, and uh, but I, I mean I like Penn State winning, but it's different atmosphere. I mean they, they used this is one of the, the greatest rivalries in in sports. Used to play at the last game of the season between Penn State and Pitt. 
Um, but uh, usually they get 10, 15, 20,000 fans. Nobody goes to the game. This Penn State pit, it's going to be packed. There's going to be 60,000 people, 65,000 uh, people at the game, uh, probably half and half between Penn State and Pitt. So it's going to be a great atmosphere. And the one time of the year Pitt plays it at, at Heinz Field and they have a tremendous atmosphere for the game. You know, that's really interesting to me. I thought that Pitt would have more of a following. And I've been to Heinz Field before. The tailgate setup is perfect. The, the stadium is very nice. Why does Pitt not have a following? Uh, is it just because everyone's Penn State fans? No, I don't think they're Penn State fans. They're Steeler fans. They're Penguin fans. Uh, it's hard. I, I, Pittsburgh's a weird town. The Pirates don't draw. The Penguins have the highest secondary ticket market in in in, in hockey. I, you, it's just weird. The, the Steelers are the biggest draw in, in football, and and it, the Pirates have trouble drawing, and the Pitt Panthers have trouble drawing. Now the Pitt Panther basketball team, when they were good, was a great draw. So it's it's just a weird market. I mean, it's weird because the Penguins are. When you say it's just the Steelers, it's not actually the Penguins probably have surpassed the Steelers in popularity. When you're going to regular season games just to get in, and the minimum ticket price is two hundred dollars to go to a, a regular season hockey game. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, and it's one of the perks of living in South Florida. And we'll have Randy Moeller, uh, the play-by-play analyst um, for the, the uh, Florida Panthers on in a few weeks once the season starts. But this is one of the perks that I get to – I go to every uh, Penguins game. I go to them here, though, and I pay the same price that I'd play if it was Columbus Blue Jackets or Vancouver Canucks. So I can get great seats for 40 bucks. you know, 10 rows off the ice. It, it's just – it's awesome, and I'm sure you've taken in some of these games here as well. Yeah, I mean it's uh <laughs> you're totally correct about that. But the 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 the, the Panthers, the Pitt Panthers for football, they have a tremendous it's so funny. Pitt says they won like thirteen national championships because back in the third twenties and thirties they gave away like seventeen to get national titles. So when you go there they have this great tradition. But Pitt looks down upon Penn State. I mean Pitt is always they say Paterno's the one who stopped playing it. I mean, they have their fight song, and they say a derogatory term for Penn State in their fight song. That's what they say. They hate Penn State, and it's a great, but it is, it is definitely neat because it's sort of like, I'm going to compare it to, I was at the USC-UCLA game because the, Pitt, the Penn State fan, there's Penn State students and everyone that lives in Pittsburgh. So the game is, there's a mixture. You're not going to have, like, all that area. Like, when Michigan plays Ohio State, it's a rivalry, but people who live in Ann Arbor are Michigan fans. People who live in Columbus are Ohio State fans. But in Pittsburgh, there's a lot of Pitt fans, at, there's a lot of Penn State fans, maybe more Penn State graduates in Pittsburgh than Pitt graduates. So it's really 50-50, and that's what makes it fun, because you have to, there's every, everybody's friend is somebody you know that went to Pitt or Penn State. Everybody knows everybody. Let's move on, Ira. Uh, tennis is in full swing right now. As you mentioned earlier, you'll, you'll be seeing Roger Federer in just about an hour and a half. Um, let's talk about the Americans first. 128 in the field here. Fifteen Americans. How did they do? Well, they there was 150 Americans. Seven made it through the first round, but only three to the, to the next round, and then Ole Isner was still playing. Now, uh, it, it it wasn't a good. It, it was just weird. It, it, between Sam Query, who had a nice run, who had to retire in the first round, uh, toward the, the younger players again got bad draws. Jack Sock, who's someone who everyone thinks is going to be this next superstar American. He lost in the second round. I mean, this is the tournament that you expect the uh, young American to step up. Now, I watched Francois Tiafo play DeMario, who is a 19-year-old from Australia. And Francois, who we had on a radio show, played a great match. And it was on court 17, which is this nice, small, intimate court. And you could I was five rows from the court. And it was such an exciting match. And he battled and battled and battled, but lost in four sets. It was it was a very close match. 
CFO Betia Mario then the following night lost the uh, two nights later, then lost uh, one of the two years ago, Silic won the championship, who actually won the day and made the quarters. So DeMario's a really good player, but it was fun to watch because TFO's 20, DeMario's 19. These are two of the best young players, and they played, and the speed from both of them, how they got the balls, um, every point was dramatic. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a fun match to watch, and it was a bad loss for TFO. But no, I would love to have seen Taylor Fritz got, unfortunately, he had to go against Djokovic, or kind of Sandgren, another good player, played against Djokovic. In these draws, it's just a luck of a draw of them. Some of these players, but a guy like Sock and Query, they need to, to make some distance, but they didn't. And now we're going to be, now Isner is in the quarterfinals now, and that's great. But, uh, you know, he has a really tough match next, so it's going to be hard. I don't know how you feel about the Joker, um, Djokovic. I know you're a big Federer guy. So there might be some conflicting opinions here because they seem to always be battling between them two and Nadal for the best in the world. Um, how did Djokovic do? Djokovic's in the Djokovic, he won today again, so now he's in the quarterfinals. So he's, he has played, it's weird, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have not played great. But they have won. But the, so they've had tough matches. They, none of them has looked like, oh, amazing. But it doesn't really matter. It's all about matches in tennis. Just because a player doesn't look good in a certain match, it's hard to say well, how he's going to play in the thing. I, I predicted the doll was going to win. I still hold to that prediction. Uh, but uh, it, the weather was very hot. It's also styles on who you play, and that's what makes it difficult. But Djokovic is, is set to, you know, he, he's definitely, um, he's going to be in the, he's in the quarterfinals, and his opponent, he's going to probably play Federer, and that's, gonna be, and that's Wednesday night. So if you're ever going to watch one match of this entire tournament, turn on ESPN Wednesday night, 9 o'clock, Djokovic and Federer. It's going to be a great, great match. It's weird that they put that. They didn't see Djokovic, who had one Wimbledon, one Cincinnati, was playing better than anyone in the game, and they see him sixth which is a joke. Uh, he should have been in the top four, so then this would have been a semifinal match, not a quarterfinal match. Interesting, yeah, how, the, how that panned out. Let's talk for a second about the women. Um, I, for a long time, I, I feel like American women's tennis has been better than the men's, and it's due largely in part to two young ladies who live about a block away from this radio station, Venus and Serena Williams here in Ballon Isles in uh, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. 128 in this field, 22 Americans in of that 128. How'd they do? Well, they're all, they're, they're, they didn't do as well as you want in terms of overall numbers, in terms of who they won, but they're going to have maybe three of the eight quarterfinalists, almost half the quarterfinalists are going to be Americans. Uh, Madison Keys, Sloan Stevens, uh, they were in the finals last year. They didn't really play well the rest of the year. Stevens, I know, is seated third, but she's because she went to the French Open final. But it's the way women's tennis is. Serena's the seating is again ridiculous on that too. But uh, Madison, I've seen her play twice. She's uh, <laughs> she didn't look good. Has not looked good in the years I saw her play. She's won them. Uh, Sloan uh, beat Azarenka two days ago. I saw that match live. She looked very good in that match too. Uh, but it's it's tough. But you got you're, you're going to get a situation where or possibly. Uh, uh, and Venus has that easy win. It, it, in many ways, the win, Serena plays Plitskova, who she can lose to. Stevens plays Akinova, who she'd win. And then the next, the other quarterfinals would be Sharapova plays Keys, and then another one, and that winner. So Keys has then an easy winner against Osaka. But uh, I, really, I really think that there's, look, it looks like American women's going to win this uh, tournament, whether it's Serena, whether it's Sloan Stevens or Madison Keys. Let's talk about um, Federer a little bit more. You said you don't think he's he's on his best game right now. You're going to see him play in an hour and a half. It might be a little bit different, but you 
are very happy about his ability to stay calm and cool when he's out there. Well, it's different. He has not, if you play, I guarantee you that everyone listening to the show plays ping pong. And you know those good <laughs> ping pong players, it's not really how hard you hit. It's the person that someone gets his, the, the racket or the paddle out and gets the angles and hits the angles both ways. He plays tennis differently than anyone else plays. Really? He is now, he says, I am, my hands are faster than anyone else plays. So he'll stand inside the service line. Now, people are serving the ball 130 miles an hour. So he said, Nadal, that's why it's so fun to watch those two play. Nadal stands back in the stands. Like, Nadal's back is against the wall. If he could go back 10 more feet, he'd probably stand there. He wants to hit <laughs> the ball. Federer is as close to the, the service line as you possibly can be. And he, like, wants to come to the net. He hits little shots. He has power. He, it's just a beautiful game to watch. But he, his margin of error is little. I mean, he's trying to hit these balls, pick them up. It's amazing. But it's, it's, he's not as sharp, but as the tournament gets on, the sharper he gets. And against these other players, the way he plays as well, he thinks it's going to be. And it's worked against Nadal. And it's worked against Djokovic. He's actually playing away a style of game that is, he's playing a style of game that's meant to beat Djokovic and Nadal. Not to, he could just go out and play normal tennis and beat all these other players. But he really is just, he has to, he knows that in order to beat Djokovic and Nadal, he's going to have to play this, this crazy game where he's just cutting the angles out and not giving these, not letting Nadal just getting in rallies with Nadal and doing all those things. So that's how he's, how he plays. But it's, it's exciting. Watch, watch, if you're going to watch tennis tonight with, uh, with football, switch back and forth and see it, an amazing match. That is the kind of spot on analysis you can only get from Ira. This is Ira on Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. It's 7 40, uh, Mike Balsamo. Let's touch on Venus and Serena just a little bit. Venus, you think she's looking pretty good so far and beat a good young player? Oh, say that again? Uh, v- Venus Williams, um, looking looking decent so far and beat a good young player on day two. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that Venus, I think I saw her play Carlos Fortier very, she looked good in the match. So, she, so I think that so Venus was... <laughs> It's weird. I, I'm not going to say they say this is fixed or anything, but clearly, um, it's hard to say. It, it's hard to say in terms of Venus looked like she's playing well. She's back in the game. She's 37 years old. She's playing great. And I think that it, that. But I did not go to the Venus Serena match. I was on the outside because I watched uh, uh, Ronick versus uh, Walrinka, which I thought was going to be a great match, which, which Ronick won, which was a tremendous match. But I'd rather have been on out, that outside court watching a Louis Armstrong because I knew when Venus and Serena play, it's just not. It's not like they're not gonna. They're not trying to beat each other. <laughs> they are. They're, they're playing, but they're not. They don't have this venom. They both are their, each other's best friends. So it's a yeah. weird match to watch. And the ticket prices were the highest of the entire tournament. Everyone's spending thousands. I mean, the court sizes were going for like ten thousand dollars, and the match was over in an hour. And they don't um, play hard. But, that's uh, crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, but it's it's like it's like these guys are best friends. It's not. That's why Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko they never fought each other in boxing. And it used to be when Venus and Serena played, one of them would default. Like there was the oh, I got an injury and then go through. Now they played the match. They played Serena. One, but it was that was sort of the match that everyone's been talking about. But it really had the build up of match, and I've seen them play before. And it's not just a, it's not it's not a great match. It doesn't neither one is really into it, and neither one likes beating the other uh, they, because they they're the, each other's best friends. Let's talk about Serena uh, before we move on. It, it, tell us about how she did, and is there a another American tennis player that you've seen just embraced by the fans like the way everyone loves Serena? She's really her popularity. Her and Federer, I. I but I keep looking at this. I'm saying, what is where is tennis going to go? Because yeah, uh, 
I, I like going to the uh, U.S. Open because I feel like I like tennis so much, and it's hard to see. But when you go to the Open, there's like every day there's like forty, fifty thousand people showing up watching tennis for two whole weeks, and you're like, where are all these tennis fans all the time of the year? And they're showing on ESPN all the time. You turn anyone, you know, people I know, they're like, every time they on ESPN, it's on twenty four hours a day, so that's all they have is tennis. So clearly, tennis is popular. They wouldn't have it on on the ratings. Serena, but you see Serena now in the, in the ads for the banks. She's in so many commercials. She's very popular. Fans love her. Um, now that she had her uh, child, it, it's more she's more human. People relate to her that way. She's uh, extremely popular. Uh, the, the ticket prices when she plays are, are through the roof, um, and uh, she's definitely she's like a living legend, and so it's better. Those two and the doll have, uh, when, they, when they're gone, I, I don't see the demand. I don't think people are going to go see Silicon, Silicon, Nishikori. Like, I just don't see the excitement <laughs> that they do for these players. I mean, it's, it's, they are, they definitely, and Terrence is so lucky that they've been playing it such, uh, so long. McEnroe retired when he was like 30 years old. Borg retired when he was in his 20s. These players used to retire when they're young. Uh, Martina and Chris played later, but usually these players don't play this long. So it, it, it's been a definitely boom to tennis to have such superstars not only play, but be at the top of their game. 743, Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's move on, Ira. It all starts this Thursday night, 8.20 p.m. in Philadelphia. NFL is back. It pains me to say that the Eagles get to play the first game of the season because they're the reigning Super Bowl champs. They're going to play Atlanta. I think Atlanta's going to win that one. But before we get into the NFL, let's talk about Khalil Mack. Um, I got to tell you, He's one of the guys, and every year I have a guy I want the Giants to draft. Just do whatever you can to get this guy in blue. Khalil Mack was one of them, and that was absolutely correct. Um, This guy is a superstar. Had some contract issues in Oakland, and they've traded him to the Bears. But there's a lot going on in this trade. To me, the Bears might have given up too much. What do you think? I I feel a lot for a defense. Not only do they trade... But they gave up. They gave up two number one picks for 2019-2020. They get back a 2020 second round pick, but then they signed into a six-year, 141 million dollar contract. The deal average is 24 million dollars a year, but guaranteed up 90 million dollars. I mean, this is quarterback money. Yeah. At 60 million upon signing, so this is a defensive player. This is one guy. I mean, this is what you, this is the money you give quarterbacks. Um, it's a huge contract. It's something. Uh, it's something that a team that's close. I mean, the Bears definitely think they're better than I think everyone else thinks. I agree one hundred percent. Go ahead. I mean, it's, it's almost like the Dominic Sue. I, I just almost think it's like when the Dolphins gave him all that money, and you're thinking, I know he's he's not an edge rusher. The Dominic Sue is more is on the is over the center and it's a different position. But I just don't know what. I don't, I'm not, Camille Mack is not Lawrence Taylor. He's not going to just be disruptive and nobody can guard him. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sold on the trade. I think the Raiders were like, we can only, I don't blame the Raiders for trading him. I, I just, I, look, they had two years ago, the Raiders, anyone who's a fantasy guy knows. I mean, when Derek Carr two years ago had this great season and everything, their, their defense was terrible. I mean, they were giving up, yeah. so they were giving up 30, 40 points a game, and Mack was a star on their team. Now, if he wasn't there, would they give up more points? But, like, a quarterback can control the offense. A quarterback can, you have everything falling apart. Aaron Rodgers, like, I don't criticize Green Bay for paying him $100 million a year because he's keeping them in the game, he's playing, he has the control. But one defensive player cannot control the game. He doesn't touch the ball. So I just think it's a lot of money 
A lot of money and a lot of draft picks for this guy. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I do think that the Bears think they're closer than they are. Maybe they're seeing something in Mitch Trubisky that nobody else is, that he's going to take the next step this year. But you're right. I mean, even uh, sometimes you see shutdown cornerbacks make big paydays. I mean, um, I can't remember the guy's name from Oakland. <laughs> uh, you know, 10 years ago, he was the, the original shutdown corner. Um, that's worth it sometimes because you completely negate some team's best offensive player. I don't know about an edge. You're, you're right. I just don't know about a linebacker. He's not Lawrence Taylor. Three-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, Defensive Player of the Year in 2016. He's from Fort Pierce, uh, right up the road here in South Florida. But Ira, yeah, I I'm agreeing with you. I just don't know. I was going to ask you, do you think this makes the Bears a contender in the NFC North? So I'm assuming your question's no, and it's like a wins-above-replacement thing, the stat in baseball. What does this guy add to your team? One win, maybe? I, I just I just don't know. So you still have the Bears as not really being anywhere close to the to the Lions, Vikings, or the Packers. Yeah, I, I don't think it adds. I, I don't think it adds much to what they won. And uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. And I think it was a distraction the Raiders had to get rid of too because they kept asking about John uh, Gruden, who was kept their coach was kept. Uh, same thing with sort of Alabama's quarterback situation, and now what the Steelers are going through with Le'Veon Bell. I mean, the Steelers are starting the season. And they don't have their star. I mean, it's so funny. Look at all these players. <laughs> you know, it is funny to watch. Everyone is drafting in fantasy over the next, the last week and coming up for the next week. Lady and Bell is going to be probably the first or second or third, no later than third, person taken in almost every single fantasy draft. He's not signed. He's not on a team. He's not playing. I mean, he's not on the he's not on the on the Steelers. So it's uh, it's a distraction. And now I think it's, it's he was supposed to sign on Labor Day and he didn't. And now it's become a huge distraction for the Steelers. And I don't know where this is going to go because this is definitely a mess with them. But the Raiders eliminated that distraction going into their season. We're going to get to Le'Veon in a minute. You know I was going to ask you about Le'Veon Bell of your Pittsburgh Steelers. That's on the way because you're. I mean, he's if you if you're not taking Todd Gurley, you're taking you're taking Le'Veon. It's, it's they're one A and one B, so you're right. It's kind of crazy that people are drafting somebody who's not signed. Before we get to that, though, this Thursday it's when it all happens. Carson Wentz, he would have been the MVP last year had he not uh, tore his ACL. He, he would have. He's not in there. Um, Nick Foles obviously came in, uh, won the last uh, game of the season. You know, took them through the playoffs, won the Super Bowl. Can the Eagles keep up success though with Nick Foles? You think? Well, first of all, I, this decision, I, I knew they were not going to start Wentz. There's no reason to rush Wentz back. They, they, they love Wentz. Wentz is going to be the quarterback. But Foles has proven, unlike all these other backup quarterbacks, Foles has, is a Super Bowl MVP. He won. He beat, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tom Brady and won in the biggest game of the year. So it's not like they're, they are going, they should be extremely cautious with Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz was 35 years old, and he had maybe a year or two left, and he was just maybe bring him back fast. But uh, there's no need to rush him. And how many, look what they did with Tannehill last year with the Dolphins. They felt he came back. I know he didn't have the surgery. There's no reason for him to rush back. None at all. Uh, and Foles, you have a capable backup. Um, you have a long season ahead of you. Wait a month. I mean, I mean, it's a, I don't I don't understand this debate. And, and I think when Doug Peterson, the only thing that I felt was weird about this when, I, when they were asking questions to Doug Peterson, the Eagles coach, and he was so sharp and yelling at the media and yelling. At, like I expected, he's starting to act like he's Bill Belichick when he really he won one Super Bowl. But don't start yelling at the media and being rude. He was. It was almost like Belichick said it in a sort of coy way. 
Peterson was like mean. He was being a very, like, stop asking me. I know my decision. I'm doing what I want to do. It's my decision and not yours. And don't put words in my mouth. And he was like, yeah, you, that's not how you treat the media or talk to them like that. And they're asking legitimate questions about the quarterback and who you're going to play. So, of anything in this whole controversy, I'm just, I, was, I sort of feel uh, my respect for Doug Peterson has gone down a little bit. And, uh, but I, I don't see any reason to rush Carson Wentz back. Are you implying that someone from Philadelphia was rude? That's just unheard of. Um, <laughs> you're right, and it's it's sad to say that their defense is fantastic, and they can run the ball. They've got capable receivers. There's no reason to rush uh, Carson Wentz back, especially when you have a capable backup in Nick Foles. Let's talk about a, a, another quarterback controversy. The Bills are going to start Noah Peterman. There's a lot of joking going around with Noah Peterman. Um, they drafted Josh Allen, so there is, you know, a quarterback in the in the making, but he's waiting right now. Ira, uh, do you think it's a correct move to let Allen sit for a little bit? Yeah, I think it's they they like Peterman. That's why they played him last year. That's why they got rid of Tyrod Taylor. They bring AJ McCarron and didn't feel like he was the capable uh, starter. Um, I, for, Peterman had a bad game. He threw five interceptions from Pitt. Um, a pick quarterback, as we talked about Pitt earlier. I, I think that, uh, look, Josh Allen's not ready. Why rush him? And that's why they're not rushing Baker Mayfield. They're not going to rush him. Sam Darnell, the Jets, they feel is ready, so they're going to put him in. I see no reason to rush. I don't think the Bills are going to do anything this year anyway. So why not? Why not? It, it, you can't, if, if Josh Allen's not ready and Peterman's a better quarterback, don't let the rest of your team suffer just to give a quarterback some extra reps. When they feel he's ready, then you put him in. So, um, and maybe Peterman, look, on the plus side, Maybe Peterman does a Bridgewater. He comes in and starts to play well, and other teams say, wow, he's a capable guy. He might be a backup. So they might trade him for a third-round pick or a second-round pick or a fourth-round pick. So it's a chance for Peterman to shine. Um, they didn't give him an opportunity. I don't expect it, but uh, I, I, look, I watched Josh Allen in the preseason. He didn't look that great. Uh, he came from Wyoming. He didn't play against top-quality competition. Probably needs some time and, uh, and to sit behind somebody and watch. That Bills Mafia is going to be jumping off RVs into uh, into folding tables, though, if they open up 0-3 and Peterman's throwing a bunch of picks. And I think we'll see Josh Allen in that case. But either way, you're right. That, that team's so devoid of talent. That's a four-win team. And I say that often, and Tyrod Taylor would manage to get them six, seven, eight wins. I just don't see it this year from anybody under helm in Buffalo. Um, you brought up Le'Veon Bell before, Ira. What is going on here? Is this guy going to sign? There's uh, ESPN's reporting the Steelers are unhappy right now. Of course they're unhappy. What's going on here? Um, this is uh, You talk to people, uh, this is now becoming weird. I mean, this is almost, and I don't want to use the term, it's becoming Kyle Leonard situation. Because the Steelers sort of thought the game was he was going to sit out this, this spring training camp and then spring training camp and then come back and play Labor Day like he did last year, but he didn't. The tweets, the rap albums, uh, this is getting weird. I mean, it's not like quiet that he's quiet. He's certainly tweeting and sending stuff out and signals out. But um, boy, I mean, is, could I wake up someday and he's traded? I mean, if Matt got traded. Uh, Leighton Bell could be traded. They they like Dan Carter. They like his backup a lot. He rushed for the average 5.5 yards rushing carries. They they think he's going to be really, really good. Um, certainly they're going to do everything they sign. I mean, they can't really 
they, they can't, I don't think they can trade him because he's not signed to a tender. So I don't know what his situation is. Very weird. I mean, they would have to sign him and trade him, have another team sign him. It's a complicated deal with Le'Veon Bell, but he's missing out money. Like, why would he sit out and lose? He's going to get paid sixteen million dollars. So it's just money that he's going to lose, and he's not getting a different. He, the Steelers can't give him a new contract. So. I don't. It's very weird. I don't think anyone understands what's going on. But if he doesn't sign by Wednesday, he's not going to play the first game. It's crazy to think about, and it's a good reason to bump him down a little bit in your fantasy draft. I don't know about you, Ira, but I put all my drafts. I have a draft tomorrow and a draft Wednesday. You gotta draft right before the season starts. There's just too many injuries that could pop up, and I, I always laugh at people that draft a month before the season starts. Um, let's talk fantasy for a minute here. What's your draft strategy this year? Oh, I don't know. This is I. I have been thinking about this for months, and I'm in a, I'm in PPR leagues, which is points per reception. So receptions count. And I won last year with Antonio Brown, so I'd like to go back with him and probably get him again. But then your second and third picks are tough because the running backs. Like every time there's been everyone like Jerry McKinnon of uh, the San Francisco 49ers. He was a good one to draft in the second and third round when he tears his ACL. So now there's another running back guy committee. Uh, the Redskins, everyone like Geis from LSU, he was going to be their star running back. He hurts his leg out for the season. Now another running back committee. How many teams actually have a stud running back? Like very, very few of them. They're, they're generally running backs by committee. And then you're just taking uh, one of the tries I did last year, and I got lucky as I started, I drafted a ton of running backs, a ton of young running backs. And I drafted in the eighth and ninth round Kamara, who ended up being a star oh, wow. and now going to be in the first round pick. But I drafted some bad running backs, too. I drafted Dalvin Cook early, and he got hurt. So I think I'm just going to do what I did last year. There's, there's backs on. There's, there's a lot of these teams. I, we talked about Roy Freeman for Denver. We talked about the Carson and Penny, Rashard Penny in Seattle. Some of these young running backs that people have been talking about, Kerryon Johnson in Detroit, uh, Ronald Jones in, 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 in Tampa Bay, who people – there's a lot of young running backs that – you just want to say, well, maybe this person's going to emerge as a star. And if you can just load up on if you're comfortable with your wide receivers, draft ones that you're comfortable with, which I'm probably going to do because I, I know which wide receivers I like and which offenses I like. I might go wide receiver, wide receiver, and then go running back. I just don't see, if I go Antonio Brown first, those second and third round picks at running backs, I just am not comfortable with any of them. They're just not ones that I feel like I'm not reaching for a Jordan Howard for Chicago Bears who, who doesn't catch the ball out of the backfield and, 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 and who might not get another backfield by committee. It just seems like all these backfields are by are running backs by committee. It's just hard to, to – it's just a hard draft. I mean, that's why I don't blame anyone for going for a Barkley or going for a Lavian Bell or David Johnson. I mean, there's only like eight or nine backs that you're sure that well, they're going to get 25 touches a game. You know, you, you hit my – there was a long time in fantasy football where it was you go running back, running back. That's just what you do. Things have shifted because of the Antonio Browns of the world and the Julio Joneses of the world because they can be a difference maker at receiver. I think it's reverting back. I think you need good running backs. And like you said, I don't think there's eight. I think Melvin Gordon is the end of the list, and he might be the sixth guy. Uh, other than that, and Barkley I have ahead of him, but Barkley's still a question mark. You don't know what you're getting. <laughs> He's never had a, 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 you know, an NFL snap. So uh, this year, I'm all in on having a stud running back. And if there's a, if a Melvin Gordon of the world is there at my second pick, I'm taking him too. And I'll work out the receivers later. One point of advice I'd give to anybody, stay away from rookie, r- rookie wide receivers. Never seem to have, have big, big years their first year. And this year of any, and I've been, preaching this for for centuries don't take a quarterback early 
okay, if it's the seventh round and Aaron Rodgers is still on the board, be my guest. The person who takes a quarterback in the third round never wins. Um, so this year I think there's more quarterbacks than we've seen ever. You can get a Jimmy Garoppolo probably 13 rounds after you take Aaron Rodgers, and he might put up comparable numbers. So that's that's my strategy for this year. I need running backs. I'm waiting on quarterbacks, and I'm going to figure the wide receivers out. Hey, if Travis Kelsey happens to be there in your draft, and it's getting close to where he's going to be gone, he's a difference maker at tight end, and I'll take him over Gronkowski any day. What about breakout players, Ira? Who's somebody you think might have a, a year that nobody sees coming? Well, I look. I like the wide receivers, and I don't know they're, they're breakout per se, but I do like the wide receivers in Minnesota. I think Baylor and Diggs, the cousins of quarterback, and the new offense they're going to be running, I think I think they're going to have really good years. So I'm looking for the. I, I, Thielen had a breakout year last year, and now he's drafted being high, but I still think they're being underdrafted. I think they're going to have monster years, both of them. So I like that. I do think for the wide receiver, it's going to be that the rules changes are going to have an effect. The catch rule is going to mean that there's going to be more of these when the ball's in the end zone, they're bobbling it, they're going to make it a catch. There's more, So you're going to start seeing more touchdowns from wide receivers because the referees are going to give them on the bobbles are going to say, okay, touchdown, and, and or catch, you get more yards of that. And also with the targeting rules, you're going to see defensive backs pull up and not want to get thrown out of the game and not going to get huge penalties. So I think you're going to see wide receivers get some longer runs and uh, catches and, and yards after a catch. And, and that, I think, helps both people who catch down the field, like Amari Cooper, and the slot receivers, like Larry Fitzgerald and the Thielen. So I think that from that perspective. But in terms of breakouts, I, I just mentioned those two wideouts. So I, think, I think you look at these teams that change uh, coordinators, um, and, and, and there might be guys that, that you look at and say, wow, I mean, under, under this coordinator, they only did this, but with this coordinator, they'll be better um, in terms of improvement. That does. I just threw those two out. There's one thing that I think ruins fantasy teams, and that's people who draft a player based off the name and what they've done in the past rather than what they're going to do going forward. So I'm going to ask you about who's on your do not draft list. Uh, Andrew Luck for me, untouchable. I, I just I just don't know what I'm getting. Um, Russell Wilson has been, he was the best fantasy quarterback last year. Where he's being drafted, I just don't love it with the lack of offensive line. I don't know what's going on with their run game. Uh, it looks like Brandon Marshall's the number two. Who's on your do-not-draft list, Ira? I just think those the running backs, they get hurt all year. I mean, Lamar Miller, I mean, it just, it just gets injured constantly. I just, I would not, these running backs that every year you think are going to be great. I don't think Henry for the, the Titans. I see him way overdrafted. Really high. Way I over almost like Deion Lewis better for 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 Tennessee. Some of the big bruising running backs. Unless you're if you're in a, in a scoring league, I mean that's where it's always understand about whether you're in a scoring league or where you're just scoring and not have a PPR. Is where Deion Lewis is going to catch the ball a lot. But when I see Henry in the PPR leagues, he's not going to catch any balls on the backfield. I don't think he's going to get the goal line touches, but you see Mariota runs in the ball a lot, so I see him not having that great a year. And again, Gordon Howard, I don't think he's going to have that great a year for Chicago. So it's just some of these guys that that uh, AJ Green gets drafted. It's like it's almost like, oh, I can't believe he's dropping. Well, he's dropping because he's really not that good a player, and because <laughs> he drafted, he was drafted higher the year before. Doesn't mean anything. So I, I don't like. I mean, AJ Green gets drafted high all the time. I don't think he's worth it. I think Devontae Freeman of Atlanta. I get another big name who was dropped really high, but he didn't really have that good a year last year. And I also think with fantasy, you've got to look at their game logs. You just don't look at 
overall total. Absolutely. Because like Julio Jones has 300 yards in a game. But you look at these running backs, some of them might have two games they catch. They have these two monster games that inflates their total. Just look at the whole year. If you're on, the thing is that if the, if the backs are on your team, the players on your team, you know if they're doing good. You're like, wow. So when you look at the overall total, you're like, wow, they had 10 touchdowns. But four were in one game. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You're losing every week. So I almost like to throw those Throw the, the worst game and the best game out, and then more. I, I don't like to have. I like to have, as they say in statistics, a, a low standard of deviation. No, you're absolutely correct on that, and you're right, and you'll see guys like that. That's That was A.J. Green last year, and his numbers weren't awful at the end of the year, but he had games where he had four points, but then he'd have a game he'd have 220 yards and two touchdowns. But then he has 220 yards his next three games. So, it, yeah, there's definitely – it's a good idea what Ira just said to kind of look for the outliers and see what the consistency is. 802, it's Ira on Sports. Hey, we're going over. You knew that was going to happen. 95.9, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira Golf. what's going on in the FedEx playoffs? Um, real fast, it was on today. Bryson DeChambeau, who I was on TV, uh, on the radio, uh, said, I don't think he should be on the FedEx, just wins the first two rounds of the FedEx. Clearly makes the team for the Ryder Cup with Tiger and Phil. They'll announce that tomorrow. Um, I watched it all day today. Tiger, 10 under, is in the mix. And then he and bogeys on one hole, and then he hits the ball in the water on 16. Uh, he was not putting himself in a position. He was getting on the green all the time, but not close. his putts were 25 and 30 feet. He had really long putts the whole day. And he finished 22nd, so he didn't play bad. I mean, he's, he had a good, good tournament. But um, it's, he has two more tournaments left. Uh, next week in Philadelphia and two weeks ago in Atlanta. If he makes, if he qualifies for the Atlanta, we'll really take thirty people. Um, but uh, so he could win one. But Tyler's been in, he's been in the mix every week. It seems like, um, but just not good enough. But Bryson DeChambeau uh, played great. Played great last week. Played great this week. Uh, all the leaders were 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 tied. It was at one point, I think it was like twenty two golfers were in three strokes of the lead, and he wins a pretty comfortable two-stroke lead. So, uh, two-stroke win for the tournament. Um, before we wrap this up, Ira... I'm a huge baseball fan, and I know there's a whole bunch of little nuances to baseball. Uh, most fans don't know what the infield fly rule is. They don't know what the uh, the Rule 5 draft is. But is there anything more confusing than Major League Baseball's trade deadline? It doesn't exist. What's going on? McCutcheon headed to the Yankees. I'm telling you, baseball's becoming WWE. I mean, if they can trade between SmackDown and uh, Raw and players get traded back and forth, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, I, 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 everyone thought the trade that was a month ago. And now it's like a trade every week. And it's got a, it's, if they had this in the could you imagine this in the NFL? You'd have all the teams that are out of the playoffs, like trading their quarterbacks. So it's like <laughs> team at the end of the year. Oh, it's like, oh, you don't have a quarterback. So wait, maybe the Eagles, they don't have to. They, when Wentz goes down, they could bring in somebody, a good quarterback. Say, luck came back and he's healthy. They got Andrew Luck. This is ludicrous. They have got to stop this. Uh, there's got to be a cutoff. They can't, it's one month before the season's over and the playoffs start, and teams are trading, make wholesale changes, not just of, of, of uh, position players that weren't, you know, maybe backup players. But we're talking about Gonzalez for the Washington Nationals, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, Donaldson is the MVP. I mean, this is the trades are, uh, I don't know when it ends. I mean, it seems like when it's supposed to end, there's another rule that lets them trade even more. So it's, it's got to, they've got to change this. It's, it's, it's making a mockery of baseball. Like I said, it's it's tough 
and I'm a diehard baseball fan. It's tough for me to even wrap my fingers around. Like I have no idea what's a huge trade could go down right now. Bryce Harper might get traded. It, it, like you just really don't know. It makes it interesting. Before we wrap it up, Ira, who's coming out of the NL West? This is the tightest division in baseball with the Dodgers, Arizona, Colorado, all virtually tied. You still in on the Dodgers? Still on the Dodgers. It's uh, it's exciting. I mean. Um, it's a great. That's the one race that everybody's going to watch because it looks it looks like the way the division works out that maybe the winner of the division will be the only team that makes it in. The others won't even get the wild card. So it's uh, it, it's going to be because with the Cubs and the Cardinals. But I, I think uh, I think the Dodgers are going to win it. But uh, it's very very exciting race. And, and the the Rockies and Diamondbacks have played great, and they they're really hanging in there. And it's nice to see some sort of race because there's really not much. Any the whole American League is is completely set, so it's not really that exciting at all. We are out of time. Went over just a little bit. It's Ira on sports on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.